Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of She's Got Drive. And in this episode, we have Dr. Nicola Rollock, who's the Deputy Director of the Centre for Research in Race and Education at the University of Birmingham in the UK. She is interested in improving the ways in which we commonly think about race and racism and identifying solutions to persistent race inequalities within the education system and the workplace. Nicola is the editor of the journal Whiteness and Education. She's the lead author of the award-winning book The Colour of Class, The Educational Strategies of the Black Middle Classes. And she is trustee of the British Educational Research Association, which works to support and improve educational research across the UK. She's also a patron of the Equality Challenge Unit's Race Equality Charter, which seeks to improve the experiences and success of faculty and students of colour. Nicola was the winner of the 2016 Precious Award for Outstanding Woman in Professional Services for her contributions to race equality, and in 2015 was selected as Woman of Achievement by the Women of the Year Council. Thank you so much for being here, Nicola. Thank you for the invitation. That's a lot. And that's not, I mean, I always ask for a praise of what you've done, you know, all of my guests, but I'm also mindful as I look at the breadth of work that you've done. So we're only going <laughs> to tackle a little bit, but let's start by before we go into how you got there and what are the strategies that you use to, to be where you are, because it's a unique position. There's not many black women who are in leaders in, in the academic space, much less leaders broadly. So share something more about you and how you got to, and the, and the work that you're doing, like just bring your work to life. So I'm an academic at, at British University, as you've said, um, and my interests are in reading, writing and teaching around race equality. So I particularly look at things around um, education policy, but increasingly I've been interested in what's going on in the workplace in terms of people of colour. So one of my deep, deep, deep frustrations is every so often there'll be reports from um, the health sector, so the NHS over here, the National Health Service, or um, the civil service, or from business, talking about the lack of people of colour at senior levels. And it's also the case within my own sector, the academy. So I've increasingly done talks on those kinds of issues or gone into organisations to look at their data and give advice, support and guidance about how that data might change. Great. I am so excited to speak to you about this and I um, because I've worked in this in leadership development for 20 some years. I've started my internship at the cabinet office when I was 18 in the commission in the race equality unit and it is a source of frustration for me too that all these years later that I I'm it's not that much different to be honest I mean I, I know we say that it's been progress but it, it really isn't that much different and that's a source of frustration for me as I particularly in the UK my experience in America I'm seeing my, many more women of colour, people of colour in leadership roles, but in the UK, not that much has changed. Or is that, am I being too much of a pessimist? No, no, no. And I don't think it's pessimistic. I think it's realistic. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, what I will say to you is I completely agree with what you're saying. One of my um, 
most formative moments in terms of my career was I was commissioned by the Runnymede Trust, which is a race equality think tank, to carry out a review into the government's progress in meeting the 70 recommendations of the Lawrence Inquiry. So this is around 2008-9. Now, the Lawrence Inquiry, for US colleagues who might not be, or your US listeners who might not be familiar with it, um, was an inquiry that was carried out and published uh, in 1999, following the racist murder of black teenager Stephen Lawrence by five white youths in 1993. And it was only in 2012 that two of those five were actually convicted. So just to go back a step, in 2008, I was carrying out a review to find out whether the government had met the recommendations as stated by the inquiry. And what I found alarmed me. So there's been all of these initiatives. The then Labour government had brought forward legislation in terms of the Race Relations Amendment Act. There were conferences, there were pots of money available for race equality, because they called it race equality then. Right. But the, the recommend, and there have been changes. So there have been changes in terms of the recommendations, and many of them have been met. But the ones which haven't been met, or where there were still clear issues, were those ones that related to race. Right. And that stunned me. Where I was at my, because I thought, but we've got this discernible moment where we're talking about race. Because the other thing to say for your US listeners is that, we don't really talk about race over here. We don't really you, talk about race over here. <laughs> no, but surely what I would say is that the Black Lives Matter, I'm not oh, saying I race see. is about a good way, but there's a vocabulary for it. You will hear white colleagues in the States talk about being white. True. Or talk about white privilege. You're right. You're right. That's not they understand it. They will name it. And... In the UK, we just don't talk about it. We, we have this myth that we are tolerant, in quotes, mm-hmm. and that that is sufficient. So we're really behind when it comes to opening up debate and dialogue about race, and in particular about the experiences of people of colour. And I hope, through my small contribution, that I'm facilitating um, a space in which those conversations can happen and also for white colleagues to better understand how they are contributing to an equity on the grounds of race. Right, right. I remember because I, um, after the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, which was huge, I think one of the things, um, given this context that we are currently in, that that was a big moment in in our British history. Um, the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, the report, I ended up working with the police as a result of that Um doing as you said there was a number of interventions um around um race relations as a result of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry and the recommendations so it was a very powerful moment and it is disappointing that with all the effort with all the work with all the energy with all the resource that was put behind it we hadn't made the gains in in race equality as we thought we would as we stood um, in that moment when they published that right. report. No, I was just, just going to agree with you in that actually what we've seen under the subsequent coalition government, so that was between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats and certainly the Conservatives now, is a real step back of regression right. in terms of government's engagement and preparedness to talk about race explicitly. I mean, the language is all about diversity. Right. And diversity tends to mean gender. And 
within gender, it's not an intersectional approach. So it's not considering how race and gender might come together. It's very much focused on experiences of white women without naming whiteness explicitly and certainly not taking account of the experiences of women of colour. Right. on so I'm going to just be quiet and let you answer questions. <laughs> no, this is fabulous. The um that that this parity there in terms of what's happening here in the US too. You know, I mean as much as I I I do want to acknowledge that there is a bigger conversation around white privilege in the US than there is in the UK. I mean, there is and um, an ability to engage in it. And so there'll be some listen goes, yeah, but we've got so far to go. And we do in the US. There is a huge there's big challenges here and we've got far to go in the UK and race and racism can can show up differently in both of those spaces. I'll speak briefly about the book and then I'll say something more about the most recent, the chapter that I wrote. Um, so the book um, was based, which is called The Colour of Class, The Educational Strategies of the Black Middle Classes. Um, it's based on a two-year research project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, and we're looking at black Caribbean middle class, so professional managerial families in the UK, and exploring how they get their children through school successfully. Now, just to kind of stop that for a moment, the reason why that's significant is because, A, we don't talk about race in the UK, and B, we definitely don't talk about being black and middle class. We do. So oh my God, you're so right. <laughs> it's a taboo. It's right. totally taboo in the UK to be black right. and middle class. It's taboo. We're hidden. And you know, one of the questions we asked about was, "Do you believe you're middle class?" And we found that a lot of our respondents were quite ambivalent or hesitant about naming themselves as middle class. Now, actually, when we look at the wider research literature, that's not unusual. But what is interesting in terms of this black professional group are the reasons why they're hesitant or ambivalent. And the reasons they're hesitant or ambivalent, the majority, is because they see being middle class as intrinsically tied up with being white. So being white and middle class. Right. And as having particular values and ways of working that they see it at odds with being black. So let me give you an example. So a parent might say that actually to be middle class means to have quite an individualistic outlook. Right. Don't be fending yourself. And as a black person, I'm con- or a black woman, I'm concerned how black young women are represented on TV and in media and so on. So I therefore don't see myself as middle class, at least as, as um, constructed or formulated in a white middle class sense. So there's a sense in which, for some, they're still learning how to be comfortable within a black middle class identity. Yeah, yeah. When you speak about identity, I mean, it's part of the challenge is when we are achieving and moving forward in in what we broad terms can be successful, is our our identity is established at a younger age in the context in which we're growing up. And... And that identity of the black middle class, for example, starts to be at odds. And so at the personal level, it, it can be, how, who am I leaving behind? Exactly. Am I leaving them behind? Is this okay? What, do, what would they think of me? You know, I'm speaking, I'm speaking it from experience of working with others, but I'm also speaking from my own experience of having that, like, 
I want to keep going and I don't want to leave my, I, I still want to maintain contact with my community. And how do I do that effectively? So this is like a challenge, like who am I? Exactly. And that indeed was precisely what came up as well. But so for others who felt ambivalent about calling themselves middle class is because actually they grew up as working class. You know, they didn't go to restaurants or have choices. Mummy didn't say which ice cream do, would you like, darling. It's that like you took what you had and you dealt with it. Right. <laughs> and I also remember kind of growing up and taking the laundry to the laundrette and um, having to compromise financially within the household. Right. So the idea of them calling themselves middle class, even though they'd made that transition in terms of maybe education and their career, felt as if they were somehow turning their back on a background that had been working class and actually served the foundation of building particular values and life skills in them. And for some of our respondents, they weren't prepared to do that. And it also meant turning their back on maybe their parents who still occupied that same working class position and some of their friends who hadn't transitioned, hadn't been socially mobile in the same way that they had done. So there's this kind of tension. And I, what I would say, if I think about some of the work that colleagues have done in the US, so Karen Lacey, Michelle Moore, and uh, Mary Patillo McCoy, that actually the black middle class is establishing itself here in the UK and working out a space in which it can feel comfortable. Right. I think that's how I'd summarise it. Yeah, I think one of the things, you know, one of the pieces of work on my training is in... Um, systemic work I know you've been trained in family therapy so I'm trained as a constellator in Bert Helena's work and uh, that work is is about including everything you know that all is all of our all parts of us are welcome are are and how do we lean on and rely on those parts of our ancestry that Mm -hmm. contribute to our success and how do we um also notice and recognize those things that sit out that are holding us back in our family system and so when I in my work in my development of myself in being being able to consolate and be a systemic practitioner I that has helped me hugely in integrating my uh this this part of my identity and and not so grappling so much with it um, right. And I think there's something in, and I'd like to, um, you know, there's a number of people I think who are moving in using that methodology to help with this regard. How do we integrate our past when we've come from a working class background? It has been our foundation and without which, without my parents and all that they gave, I would not be where I am. I know this. Exactly. Yeah. And at the same time, they didn't necessarily want me to stay where I was. You know, that was part of the game, of right? That was part of, of the hard work. So how do we honour that, step forward, keep going? Tell me about your background and how you, what was your personal journey to get where you are into the academic space? You know, so when you say background, I'm, I'm going to go background, like deep. <laughs> <laughs> so my parents are from the Caribbean. They're both from Barbados and they came to the UK in the 60s and... <laughs> I would say that my family really embraced this idea, my parents really embraced this idea of education as a route to mobility. I grew up in a household where there were particular lines or statements or phrases that were just wrote, standard. So my dad would say, look, once you've got your education, 
no one can take it away from you. And he also said, you know, you're going to have to work twice as hard as the white man to succeed. Or if there's a job and you're equally qualified as that person, they're more likely to get it. Right. And actually, sometimes if, when I share those, and it's not often that I do so, but when I share those kinds of uh, phrases with white colleagues, they assume that that means that you thought, oh, my God, I'm so intimidated by those statements and how big they are, that it means that you have low expectations for yourself. And actually, that wasn't the case. Right. And it certainly isn't the case for anyone that I know. We grew up, that was just, it was the way it was. I didn't understand the magnitude of what my dad was saying in terms of working twice as hard. It was just something he said. Right. It's only when I became an adult and experienced the workplace and heard other people's stories that I began to give life to and understand what that meant in practice. Mm. So I grew up in a house where education was seen as absolutely important. My sister and I went to... Um, a state school first of all and then a fee-paying school um, when we were older and that was primarily my parents sacrificed a lot in order to enable that to happen yeah. um, and then off the and it's a kind of school where everyone expect, was expected to go to university or college as they were called in the states and I think because of that that fostered in us a particular set of norms or ideals because we went to the kind of school where everyone was expected to go to university it was just normal right Um, I didn't enjoy university at all. It was a big culture shock. I went outside of London. I went as far away from home as possible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Freedom and my independence. And I went to Liverpool University in the early 90s. And that as a young black woman who didn't have a vocabulary around race or class or gender was a complete shock for me. These are times when I would process straighten my hair right. and I'd be looking for hairdressers or looking for food where I could buy plantain or yam or sweet potato. And these things I took for granted in London. But in Liverpool, I had to hunt them out. <laughs> <laughs> so I, my, my time at Liverpool was not a happy one. And even things around um, even social life, so wanting music and going to listen to R&B or hip-hop or whatever it was, it just wasn't readily available. So again, we had to hunt those things out. And I found that really difficult. I didn't have the language to describe it, but I found that quite challenging. Um, later on, I i mean, I did have aspirations at the time to be an educational psychologist or a clinical psychologist. But by the time I got to the end of my degree, I was just like, bad enough. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't put me back in higher education. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because the social the impact you're speaking about the impact of the social environment really versus Mm. actually the content of the program that you were on but how powerful that is in well Shirley to be honest there were some aspects I did a psychology degree right and so some aspects of the degree I was a bit confused by so there's a point when we're talking about intelligence and whether it's innate and whether particular groups had innate races had innate intelligence and I remember the, the lecturer presenting this data as if it was fact. So he didn't, he didn't say, well, this is what Cyril Burt believed, and Cyril Burt was a geneticist and believed that some groups were inferior, but that's now been widely dismissed and seen as inaccurate. He just presented it with no critique. Oh, no. I, uh, 
I remember looking around that room thinking, oh my God, these people, everyone's going to be digesting it as if it's the truth. Right. And so there were moments in the degree program that I found difficult as well as the socio, the social context as well. Right, right. But in coming back to London, I um, then did family therapy, as, as you picked up, mm-hmm. and I decided that I still wanted to hold on to my connection with academia and psychology and therapy. So I became a research assistant for a psychology professor and haven't looked back. <laughs> oh, cool. You know, there's so many things that you're sharing that resonate with my experience. Uh, in, um, and I imagine resonates with a lot of people of colour in the UK, um, black people in the UK as well, unfortunately. Um, and I... I'm slightly older than you. I, you know, so I graduated in 89 um, from my first degree and you would have started post me, but the, the, the experience was very, very similar. And I went to Reading. Um, and so I'm, it's taking me back. It's taking me back, Nicola, as well as the messages from your parents. I have, I'm, my, my parents were Caribbean too. Okay. Oh, they still are. My, my, you know, my dad's passed away, but my mum... Yeah, they're they're from the Caribbean too. So those those things resonate, and they they have. So how much has those three things um, guided you? Those three messages about education. No one can take it away because now you're in education. Is your work, um, and uh, you know you have to work twice as hard. And if you're up against a, a role then the, your white counterpart is more likely to get it. Those are the three messages from your dad. You know, I, I think it's really important to say that while those things were the mantra of the Rollock household, I, as I said before, they weren't firm in my head because I didn't really understand what they mean, meant. I had no work experience, I had no world experience, I had nothing to really base them on mm-hmm. other than what my parents were saying. And, you know, you think, oh, you've come over, you don't really know what you're talking about, and, you know. But I, I, I definitely do work hard and extremely hard because I don't feel that I can take for granted that my contributions will be immediately recognised or valued. Right. And I say that partly because my area of specialism is race anyway, and I know what the literature is. But, you know, one of the things that I do, and very unashamedly, is each time I have a huge achievement. So when I won the Precious Award at the end of last year uh, for contributions to race equality, I emailed the second in the command of the university. I emailed the head of college. I emailed the head of school, the head of department. I attached a picture. Not because I'm overly ostentatious or arrogant, but because I know the data says that our experiences are not valued and we're often not seen. Right. I'm going to attempt to work against that. So it's like I'm here and look how amazing I am. Nice. That is totally a good... I'm loving that you're seeing that, how you're sharing that, because that is a a key strategy. And let's face it, people are doing that all the time. But lots of people are beefing away unbeknown to them. But meanwhile, their colleagues in Esthem are emailing whenever they've had any kind of accomplishment. And so that's a key strategy, that when you've got an accomplishment, you need to let people know that you 
yeah, have and, achieved and that. Feel, exactly. Not to feel abashed or embarrassed about it. I mean, I do it and I'm not looking for congratulations. I'm not looking for anything. I'm doing it to say, I did this. You need to know about it. Yeah. And I'm moving on. Well, I think the education one that no one can take away is absolutely key. But what I would say is that I worry, and this is not just for myself, and perhaps we'll come on and talk about health and well-being. I worry about that mantra working twice as hard. Um, Tenahisi Coates in his book, Between the World and Me, said, right. you know, we get told that, but that means we're accepting half as much. And personally, I don't think that's true, because for me anyway, um, because I push and I expect more. But then I then have the reflection of, then I, do I get seen as an overly pushy black woman? Right. I was like, well, I'm being pushy because I know I'm not going to get seen and I know I'm not going to get heard. <laughs> yeah, the tension. And, exactly. So there's a kind of bind between naming your experiences and how and demanding to be recognized and valued and working against the stereotype as the overly pushy black woman. I'm not overly concerned about that. I'm more concerned about my achievements and am I doing what I want to do? Am I happy? Am I looking after my health and well-being? Right. And I, what I really want to emphasize, if, if it's okay, Shelley, is that I'm concerned by that mantra of you have to work twice as hard. And I challenge my parents to this day because I say to them, you told me how to work twice as hard, but you didn't tell me any strategies to go along with that. So, for example, I have my Netflix and duvet evenings <laughs> where <laughs> it's all about Nicola and it's about self-care. I'm not answering emails. I'm not answering my phone. In fact, I've hidden my phone somewhere. It's about giving to myself. Nice. Because I would have worked all evening, all night, I would have put in an extra bid or tried to write an extra journal, journal article. And it's like, actually, if I'm having to work twice as hard, I need to be very clear and explicit and honest with myself about my self-care. So I do Absolutely. yoga. Nice. Literally yoga. I will go for walks. I will sit, as I said, with Netflix and watch Insecure or <laughs> Greenleaf or whatever it is, just to have my downtime. And what are the other strategies that you use around your self-care and managing the balance between working twice as hard, you know, that the, the pursuit? Because the strong, the strong black woman is, is, uh, is, uh, is something that many of us carry that as an identity and it has mm. an impact on us. So what, 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 do, what else do you use to take care of yourself to create balance? And, and I appreciate you kind of naming that strong black woman trope, which I see myself sometimes subscribing to but also pushing back on but I also see a lot of my female friends you know they're managing childcare, they're managing like home duties they're managing work relationships and it's literally as if they've got a million hands and I suppose what I've started to tell myself is that it's okay not to be do you, know, do you remember that Karen White song Superwoman I'm <laughs> not Superwoman <laughs> but the kind of thing to myself you know, you, I don't need to be a superwoman. Right. And it's okay not to be strong. It's okay to be tired because you're doing so much. Right. And to kind of give myself permission to be tired and to be upset and to be angry. And it's okay to be angry because there's some things that are, are anger-inducing. Right. 
it, because that those tropes kind of make us struggle against them and sometimes deny the truth of what we're really feeling, which in itself can cause more exhaustion and impact on our health and our well-being. So I'm, I'm really today, as you speak to me, really about naming. This is how I feel right now. Not necessarily to other people, but sometimes to other people, but to myself and being honest with myself about how I'm feeling. So that's the first thing to say. But in addition to Netflix and duvet nights and the yoga, Iyengar yoga, I have to stress. Because <laughs> um, I love what that does in terms of alignment and, a, and stretch. Right. Um, I have, I suppose, different layers of self-care. So I have at work, you know, I, I might do some yoga, but obviously I can't do Netflix at work. So at work I have music, I have some jazz, I have some Miles Davis, I have some Jay-Z, which I put on quietly for things are particularly stressful. Right. Help me unwind, detox. And um, up to quite recently, I had Maya Angelou's And Still I Rise poem on my wall right. as a reminder that what I go through as a woman of colour is not in isolation, that there are those around me who I might not see in other institutions. My ancestors who've gone before have fought similar fights, have had similar struggles. I'm not alone. And that alone, that recognition alone empowers me. You know, it's that I walk like I've got oil wells at the meeting of my thighs. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh, it's so... I rely, I have relied on her, Dr. Maya Angelou, for 30 years. I have drawn from her. So you are, there's so many, there's so many, they've given so many great um, examples that other people can take on if they're listening and think, oh my God, I could do that. I could have that poem up or I can listen to music that's soothing or I can listen to music that, that represents my anger or my frustration. I can whilst I'm doing rec, but, but the biggest thing you were speaking about, I think is just owning and recognizing the feelings that you're having, how you're, what's happening to you. And then you can respond appropriately versus ignoring it. Exactly. And I think the other thing to add to that, Shirley, is, is the kind of, I give myself little gifts. And that might be the handbag that I've wanted for a while and I give myself that as a gift if I've had a particular good achievement. The other thing that I have still continue with Dr. Angelou is I have a folder in my inbox that's called And Still I Rise. And that is where I receive emails on congratula of congratulations, where I've won something, anything that's positive and amazing, I put in that inbox. So if I'm having a bit of a oh my God, I hate everyone. Let's <laughs> 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 go to that inbox and it's like, look how amazing you are. Look what you've achieved. You can do this and still I rise. <laughs> oh, that's a brilliant idea. I totally love that. I love that. I'm, I love that idea. Like having it all in one place that you can go to um, and then you can be fed by exactly. that when you need to. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, Given that you've talked about, given that, let's that links to how how would you define success then? So that in your and still I rise inbox <laughs> or folder mailbox is indications of your success. How would you define your success? Do you know? I, I think first of all, I want to say I think this will vary for 
people, for individuals. It's not going to be the same for everyone. And, you know, if I think about what success looks like within my sector as an academic, as a member of faculty, it can be winning research grants. It can be getting your article in a particular high-status uh, journal. Um, it can be becoming a professor, especially because there are very few black female professors in the UK. There's something like 24 across the entire UK. It's abysmal. And I'm really pleased because I've just won some research funding to look at their career experiences. I'm really yes, excited about that. great. All so, 24 of them. I know. <laughs> yes. For me, where I am in terms of both my career, um, so I've been doing what I've been doing for about 20-odd years now, and also where I think where I am in terms of age, and you're thinking about midlife crisis and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I suppose success for me is about freedom, freedom of choice and financial autonomy. So I would ideally like a, a way of living life where I have more choice and more freedom to spend with loved ones and where, um, yeah, where I have autonomy financially so I can maybe choose to do consultancy and be an academic. So it's really about freedom. Freedom is high up on the list. Choice right, and freedom. Right. So when you sp speak about it, are you speaking about it like you've got it already, or is that where you, when you're, when you get to that place, then then that's you would have achieved success? Because for yeah. So which one is it? I'm just curious as you speak as you speak it. I think I'm straddling it. <laughs> Hopefully elegantly. <laughs> I think it's interesting because I receive lots of emails kind of to, to and invitations to give talks or from establishing uh, scholars, particularly scholars of colour, who will say to me, I've read your work and it's amazing, it's inspired me, you're an inspiration. And I think, oh, wow, that's really humbling because, you know, you're just there in your little corner doing your thing. So in terms of do I think I'm at success? I don't know. I'm a, I'm a, I am an achiever. I'm a high achiever. That's within me. So I guess the answer would be no, that I'm always striving for more. I, I think, what, let me put this in context. I look at my area of specialism, so race equality. There's so much to do. Right. There's so much to do. We're nowhere near and in a racially just society. So in that context, it's difficult for me to say that I'm successful per se, because I see there's a, a big fight to be, to be um, carried out. And also there's a fight to be carried out with others who are working in the field as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I'm curious about how the, if the definition if if the definition of success is in the backdrop of ending racism then you're that's going to be a challenge to see the work and your accomplishments um as successful if the backdrop and i really like and i also like as you share when people look at you, you inspire others to be, to step into their, their potential, to take themselves on, to be authors, to be academics, to be um, professors, to be, you know. So in terms of that, from the outside, looking at you, I would, 
that I would hold you as a successful person. But I, but obviously, as we're discovering, as I ask this question of all of my guests, mm. the definition of success is very personal. Mm. I yeah, I agree, and I suppose you know it's because I look at the word success and it seems big. In my head, it's kind of it seems a bit like yachts and chilling and people dancing <laughs> into the. So in that case, I'm definitely not there. <laughs> but you know, if, if I take success as um, opening up a space in which, as uh, as happened at a re- recent panel event, where a woman of colour came up to me and she was clearly emotionally distraught. And we just had a panel session talking about how black women code switch within the workplace, how they survive in the workplace. And she came up to me with her eyes lowered and she said, you know, is there anywhere, is there anyone I can talk to about this type of thing? And she clearly meant in terms of um, getting professional help. So, and I was able to, because I trained as a therapist, I was able to recommend somewhere to her. For me, that feels like a mini contribution. Success feels too big. But it feels like giving back, that feels right. good. It's opened up a space for other people to say, do you know what? I feel pain when I go through racism. Or do you know what? Yes, I am tired. Right. That feels success. It's not big success, but they're mini achievements. So opening up space, connecting people, ensuring that people don't feel isolated, all of those feel like success for me. What's powerful about that as well is she came to you and she shared that, um, and at the same time, there are many who will sit in audiences, for example, hear the story, who will be sitting at home listening to the podcast and hearing you, and then they can see for themselves, oh, I am tired, oh, I am angry, and maybe I can be, I need to do something about that, because I'm, you know, we, one of the pieces of, one of the key pieces of work that I do, and it, it comes up again and again when I'm coaching women and black women is I do a a systemic piece of work around carrying the burden you know we carry the burden of um many as we work in different spaces and how do we live our lives by being true and being committed to whatever our purpose is without carrying the burden of others on us at the same time that's so true and what you're saying has just touched me very deeply I think I remember the first time I published something about uh, race and gender and just young black women came up to me and said, I was so touched by that piece. Thank you so much. And I was shocked because in my head, it was just me articulating experiences on paper. I didn't realize it was going to carry so much meaning and allow others to have a voice and feel validated to say that, you know, you're not alone. You're not crazy because of the things you experiences. Yes. You didn't make them up. You, you don't have to double check. It is happening. It's real. And it's happening to all of us. If I can even do that, that feels like success. Nice. And what's been the biggest challenge for you in your work? <laughs> we might be, there might have been a few. <laughs> but if you had to choose one, what was the one that would... Do you know, Shelley, that's an absolutely mean question because <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I could choose one. I've just shared with you the data on the number of black right. female professors in the UK and that alone says quite a lot. Right. And that number 
stayed relatively static over the last five, six years. Um, I think I, I am, if I think, and I put it, I'll put my answer like this. Mm-hmm. If I look, there's so much research out there t- from different sectors. Mm-hmm. And what you see is that the people who lead those institutions are generally white men and they're from privileged backgrounds. They've gone to Oxford or Cambridge or to one of our elite universities in the UK, known as Russell Group Universities. So they're white men. I sit, in terms of the identity that I occupy, direct, uh, diametrically opposed to that. I'm right. a woman and I'm of colour. So when there are initiatives or events that are around gender, for example, they're not actually talking about me. They're not talking about women of colour. They're talking about white women. So the challenge, one of the challenges can be around isolation. Mm. Um, but I've talked to you about some of the strategies that I've employed to kind of to feed and nourish myself. But I'm also really clear. I don't expect institutions to provide solace in that way. I used to at the start of my career. Mm-hmm. Now I join email groups. I'm on social media. I have great contacts both within the sector and across other sectors. Right. And that nourishes me. And it also raises my profile. And it's something that I say to those. Um, I was speaking to a woman on Monday who's thinking of be- becoming an academic. Um, be active in your networking. You know, don't rely mm. on your institution to provide the networks and the nourishment, the spiritual nourishment that you need. Look for it elsewhere. And that's what I do. So that's one of the things that definitely feeds me. But, you know, also the other point to add is I'm a woman of colour talking about race. That's never going to be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that doesn't go down well in certain spaces. It doesn't go down well in certain spaces. That's true. It does not go down well. Um, but what I have found is that the networks that I am part of, I've built up a reputation for being reliable, for being credible, for knowing my work. And that means that I get called back right. to do talks. That feeds me. So when I get the challenges such as, because you get pushback. If you're talking about race, you always get pushback. You get denial, avoidance, right. pushback, anger, tears from white women. So the challenges are endless. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so I really... You know, it's really it's so important to not underestimate the importance of self-care because, you know, I know for, you know, when you speak about the endless challenges, then you have to take care of yourself. And the other thing is when I talk, I've, one of the things that I, my intention with this podcast as well and having all these inspirational um black women and women of color on the podcast is because as you say we work and live in environments that are not pulling for our success and so in order to be successful in an environment which is not pulling for your success you have to resource yourself in different ways and um and so finding that outside of the environment and, and the the young, the youth in me, like the, the, the youth in you that would assume that where you work is going to provide that for you. And sometimes I've had an experience I've had, which stands out for me, where my experience of when I worked in the NHS way back when I had an amazing 
uh, line manager, an amazing leader. He was so supportive. He, he had my back when people were doing things that weren't great. Let's just put it that way. And he, it was, to this day, I am so grateful and thankful to him, Ken Gold, for what he did and what he provided me. And he stays with me as someone, as a leader who stands up and is willing to um, speak out on your behalf. Um, yeah. And those people are rare, unfortunately. They don't always, they're not always in your midst. But it doesn't speak to the wider yeah. system. That's just one person in that system who's, who's supporting you. So then what is it about you? You know, because there are many people, we've talked about the environment. There are many people who approach it and say, and then withdraw. There are many people who go in it and then leave. And this is like, whether it's the academic environment or whether, because the, the, the statistics are mirrored across the board. You know, they, we can find, if we went into the finance sector, if we went into um, even, you know, so that those statistics are still small of the number of black women who are in leadership positions. What is it about you that has you be in it, doing the work, from the outside certainly achieving yeah it's, it's really interesting because my sister says I have a very positive outlook and that I have a growth mindset which for me is really interesting I've never thought about myself like that because you know as I said I have my Netflix and duvet moment and sometimes when it's really really bad I reach for the ice cream even though I shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> it must go to the gym the next day but I, I think what she means, because in exploring that with her, what she'll say is, yeah, but Nicola, what happens is you'll have those moments and then it's as if you kind of rise from the ashes and you come back. And in some ways, actually, I mean, it's quite funny. It's true because I will literally, as I think I've said before, just everything is off and it's about me. It's about self-care. It's me. Right. Go to the cinema. I don't want to talk to anyone. It's just Nicola, just kind of being with Nicola. Right. And then I'll allow myself to think, and then it's almost the roll up the heel, roll up the sleeves, put on the kitten heels, and it's like, okay, I'm ready. I'm not going to allow that thing to crush me. Or let me look at this. What is my learning from this? And my learning might be, well, do you know what, Nicola, you didn't listen to your intuition, and you should have followed your intuition. What was going on there? Or my learning might be, do you know what, that was really, really awful. And I don't appreciate it. How are you going to move forward? What, what can you do with this? Bearing in mind others, and this is what I'll say to myself, that others who've died, gone before and died. Right. So what are you now going to do? You can stand. You can do this. You have this. You've got this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the process. And I think what worries me, and I, I, and I do want to say this quite emphatically, I get really worried sometimes um, because I hear, and my, some of my friends do this, there's a lot of positive speak. So they'll have little mantras or talks, um, everyday quotes that they give to themselves to feed themselves. And I think that's important. But what I worry about is that it doesn't provide a space for, do you know what, I'm tired, I'm low, and I just need to be still for a moment and then look at, where I could revise things in the future and then build from there. Yeah. It just feels like we just feed ourselves positivity until we believe it. 
And I think there's a space for that, but I think there's also a space of being honest and allowing yourself to heal and allowing yourself to grow. Yeah, definitely. So the affirmations, as we said, are are, are great and and do um, have a great effect. And they're not the only thing. They can't, you can't can't pull that on top of not fully acknowledging your feelings and what's happening with you. So this friend of mine who's a coach, you know, one of the things that she said to me is, well, you've got your well and you've got your reserve well. Mm. And even your reserve well is empty. So you have to start, you have to make sure that your reserve well is full, right? So as your well is draining out, then then at least you can lean on the reserve well. But if there's nothing in the reserve well, then there's nothing to even. So that's where where the self-care, where the the duvet, well, my coach, other coach told me about duvet days, which is a similar (laughs) thing where you block it out and you are, and I was like, oh, my God, we could have a du- I could have a duvet day. I could have a duvet day. It's Giving so yourself lovely. permission exactly. to do those things, to, to make sure that at least my reserve well is full. Exactly. And so, yeah, that's what it's so, so, so important. And then the affirmations are feeding, not trying to bring me up to just to bring me to zero. They bring me beyond zero. Exactly, exactly. I couldn't agree more. And what I just throw into that mix in terms of one of the things I do to manage some of those challenges, because, you know, some of this stuff is, as you said, systemic, but it's not going to go away. Right. <laughs> so it's about tools we have to strategize and survive. So my, my, next, my next level up beyond the duvet, Netflix and the yoga and so on, is that every so often I will just pack a bag and take myself off somewhere for the weekend by myself and let someone else make breakfast, someone else make the bed. So you know the things that we are busy dealing with every day? I am being looked after. Right, right, right. And, you know, if there are some, there'll be some women who don't have the financial resource to do that. But there are other things you can do. Like I have, you have, if you have friends in your network who will, you could go and stay with for example, and just say, I just need to just like be here and I don't want to cook. I don't want to clean. I don't want to look after anyone. Could I just like sleep in your spare room and just, you know, can you bring me cups of tea? And you know, that someone else takes care of you. And without judgment. And it can be even, you know, because finances aren't always there. So even just going for a walk, a long walk can help just clear your head and being around nature that costs nothing. Right, right. Um, in all of this so far, in the story so far that is Nicola, um, what's been your, what's, what's the biggest life lesson or guiding principles that you think you're, you, you live, you're living by? I mean, we're hearing some of them as you, as you share, but I'm just curious to see what, which ones would stand out for you as... I think what would be at the top of the list is the self-care mm-hmm. and given oneself, given myself permission to be, um, to take time out, that it's okay. The emails will keep coming. <laughs> they're, yes. they're not anywhere. Um, and that also I have a strength within that I'm not always aware of and to remind, I do things 
to remind myself of that. And I suppose the other life lesson which I is something that I maybe did. This is me sharing now. So maybe about four years ago, I had a re- I reflected on my circle of friends and acquaintances, and I reflected on. You know, sometimes you spend time with someone, and at the end of it, you just feel in, enhanced. You feel like you're taller. You're still laughing about the jokes that you had. Right. You just feel like you've grown in some way and you go home lighter and energized. And then there's other people where, you know, they're the ones who call you and put all of their load on you. When it comes to your turn to speak and share, there's no time. Right, right, right. (laughs) Your energy feels very different when you leave their space. And I really reflected quite seriously on how I felt around different people who energized me, who enhanced me. And I don't mean who just gave me positivity. They might give me critical and challenging feedback, but it came from a loving and supporting space. So I changed, I suppose one of my values and my my principles for now is spending time around people who who are positively focused, critical, yes, but positively focused, who will enhance me. Because I have a complicated job. I have a complicated and challenging um, career path. I need people who are going to hold me up when I'm feeling low and weak and when I'm feeling strong can help sing my praises. So I'd say that is also absolutely fundamental. Oh, that's so powerful. That is so powerful. Surround yourself with people who are for you, who are encouraging, who are, as you said, challenging and who are, yeah, the step away from the naysayers. And the negative, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and how, how that impact that has on us as as we go about our life. That's hard and that's not always easy when the people the some of those people are people we may have known for a very long time. And that's why you know there might be other reasons why we've maintained those relationships. Was there anyone like that for you who you then moved away from? There, there was, and there have, there have been, but I think I started to look at what friendship me- means from a different starting point, because I'm slightly romantic, so I would think, oh my God, but I've known you since we came out of the womb, and, right. and we should be friends forever, and you should be at my children's wedding, and, blah, blah, blah. and I just thinking, but even, even if having that mindset, I could have that mindset, but it doesn't mean the other person necessarily has that mindset. Right. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the other person's invested in learning about themselves and looking after the relationship, the friendship in the same way. So I think I took a different starting point. So it wasn't so much the longevity, which, you know, was hard for me to let go of because, as I say, I'm quite a romantic and nostalgic person. Um, and it was more about the value of that person and the value I could bring them. That's at the foreground of how I build friendships. Great, great. And uh, so let's look, I'm, I'm starting to this couple more just to kind of close this. It's been such a rich conversation. Um, is there anything you had to not do to, to be where you are? Not that I can share in a podcast. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll leave that there. Let's leave it there. Moving swiftly on. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> if you had to 
think back to the younger um, Nicola, um, who was going off to Liverpool and and share some advice to her from where you are right now, what advice would you give her? I would encourage her, well, I would tell her that she's amazing, first of all. I would tell her that she has a strength and a resilience that is unsurpassed and yet that she yet is to discover. I would tell her to become financially literate and autonomous as soon as possible. So, um, you know, if I look at my niece, for example, and I think about the fact of living in a capitalist society and our dependency on others to pay us, for many people, not all, then actually understanding money, being financially literate and how it can work to your advantage, I would love my 18-year-old self to have understood that better mm-hmm. then. I mean, I, I did as soon as I could take up a Saturday job. I think I think the age was 16 back then. And I took that up because my dad, <laughs> we, we got pocket money, my sister and I, but my dad, you know, being very, very Caribbean, would decide to withhold it, sometimes for reasons that were known to me, but sometimes... <laughs> <laughs> For reasons that to this day I wouldn't know. And I decided that as a result, I would go and make my own money so I wouldn't have to depend and wait on anyone, especially this man who wouldn't discuss things with me (laughs) (laughs) to make decisions. So I think there's something about nurturing that side of me and knowing about, um, and I, I say this thinking about black people more broadly, but knowing about investments, how to grow money, how to save money. My 18-year-old self didn't necessarily have that awareness, so I'm curious about whether I'd have made particular decisions in a different way, in a more... I mean, I wasn't at all a reckless young person, but whether I would have been more shrewd. Because I think financial wealth, financial autonomy, is key to, I suppose, our liberation of people of colour. Yeah, yeah, that's very powerful. We you open up another um, area that would be a a good place to explore in another podcast, I think, because you're absolutely right. You know, if we can get those messages around money, particularly if you're from a background that's a working class background, you don't get access to some of those key bits of information and messages as you grow up. And so you have to discover that and you have to learn that. So how do we get more, as you said, financially literate as we go forward. Um, That's great. So, Nicola, it's been so wonderful to have you on the show. It's been so wonderful to hear your story and your journey. Um, And it's just been really rich. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for your amazing and very probing questions that got me to share my underbelly. <laughs> <laughs> and I look forward to us meeting in the future, maybe when I'm in, in the UK. Yeah, that'd be great. Later in the year and um, would be awesome, awesome, awesome. Yeah. All right that's then. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve, for appreciation. <laughs> I hope you've been really inspired to shift gears in your own life out of today's episode. I always love to hear from you. So 
if you go over to my page at shirleymcalpine.com leave me a comment about what you're getting what insights you're seeing how you're making changes in your own life as a result of the episodes and the wonderful people that you're hearing from She's Got Drive is produced by Cassandra Voltolina music by the awesome female band Blonde if you want to connect with me Go online, follow me on Instagram at Shirley McAlpine Consulting or I'm on Twitter at Shirley McAlpine. You can always head over to our Facebook page, She's Got Drive. I'd love to hear from you there. If you're loving the show, why don't you subscribe on iTunes so you can get automatic downloads each week when a new episode is published. I'd love to you to give a review if you're feeling it too. And head over to my page on shirleymcalpine.com if you head over to the website then you can get a download of how to be a woman with drive these are my top tips having spent years coaching women on how to up their game how to be more impactful increase their presence and so i've just put together some tips for you to take on your life so head over to shirleymcalpine.com and you can get a free download when you sign up Thank you again for listening. Until next time, go well and stay well.